Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. I'm not going to ask you to answer that question out loud. There's a lot of different thoughts, a lot of different answers, a lot of different responses on this video. And I'm so thankful that you're here this morning on this Easter Sunday. And I want to say up front that sometimes Christianity can be a little bit confusing. There's a lot of confusion when it comes to Easter, the cross, the resurrection. And maybe you're here this morning, and I'm glad that you are, and you have a lot of questions. Maybe you've come in this morning, and and you're not quite sure where you stand on the issue. You have a lot of questions. Maybe you have some doubts Maybe it's just not fitting together, and you're here on Easter Sunday because you want some answers. And let me just say up front, we as a church are very, very glad that you're here. We're glad that you're here to understand what it means to have a relationship with Christ. And I think the reason that Christianity is so confusing is because there's a misunderstanding about what the Bible says about, about faith, about what it means to truly have a relationship with Christ. As some said on the video, maybe you think that Christianity is following the rules. If I'm just a good person, if I just follow the rules, if I just treat other people the way I want to be treated, that's how I have a good relationship with God. And so you kind of have this attitude that I hope that my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, and at the end of my life, God will reward me, God will get me into heaven, because somehow my good deeds have outweighed my bad deeds. Or maybe you think, you know, if I, just, if I just try to follow the Ten Commandments to the best of my ability, then God will let me in. You see, here's a fundamental issue related to human nature, and you may not know this, but as human beings, we are fundamentally wired to want to somehow save ourselves. We want to control our own destinies. We want to map out our own future. In a sense, we want to be self-saviors. And in my observation of human, uh, of human uh, nature, I, I believe that there are two fundamental ways most people live their lives. There's two fundamental ways that you can orient your life. Here's way number one. Number one, you can try to live by moral improvement by being religious. If I, if I just am religious, if I try to follow the rules, if I try to live a moral life, if I, if I live by the golden rule, if I orient my life around being a morally good person, that's my ticket to heaven. That's how I earn a relationship with God. That's one way you can live. Now, I've also seen there's another way people can live. Number two, self-expression by being non-religious. Okay, there are those that that are moral, they're religious, and there's those that say, you know what, I don't really care about religion per se. What I care about is being true to myself, whatever that means. 
Whatever my moral code is, that's, I just want to be true to me. I'm not that concerned about going to church. I'm not that concerned about being religious. As a matter of fact, I wouldn't even consider myself to be religious. My biggest fundamental desire is to express myself or to discover who I truly am. Because after all, if there is a God, he looks at my heart, and that's what really matters. What if I told you that both of these fundamental ways to live are dead-end streets and will lead you into bondage, will lead you into anxiety, will lead you into frustration, will lead you into captivity. Think about this for a moment because what you're doing is you're putting yourself at the center. You're elevating yourself above God. So if your desire is to be a moral person and your whole identity is wrapped up in being religious, how do you know you're being religious enough? How do you know you've done enough? And what happens if you majorly blow it and you look bad to others and that, that reputation that you have of being moral has been shattered? That brings frustration. That brings guilt. That brings bondage. What about the non-religious person? You don't really care about religion, but you're living for pleasure. You're living for the here and now. You're living by following your heart. Well, what happens if that person that you've put all of your stock in lets you down? What happens if the pleasure you're seeking runs out? What happens if you find yourself making some major decisions and you're alone at night and you think to yourself, there's got to be something more to this life than what I'm doing? You see, there's two ways to live. You can live very morally and being very religious, or you can live non-religious and try to just express yourself. Those are two fundamental ways to live that are dead in streets. But today I want to give you some good news. There's a third way to live. There's the biblical way to live. There's the right way to live. It's the way of Jesus. It's the way of the gospel. It's, it's why we celebrate his, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. You see, you can be freed this morning. You can be freed from the bondage, the guilt, the frustration, the anxiety of whether you're trying to be moral or trying to be expressing yourself, whether you're trying to be religious or non-religious, wherever you are on the spectrum, you can be freed from that this morning because of the message of Jesus. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus shows us the dangers of these two ways to live, and he shows us the beauty of the third way, the gospel way. So I'm going to invite you to turn to Luke chapter 15. Hopefully you're, you're there. And I'm just going to read verses 1 and 2 because verses 1 and 2 set the stage for why Jesus tells a parable. Now, a parable is just a word that means a story that Jesus tells to illustrate a point. So let's pick up in Luke chapter 15, verse 1. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man, that's talking about Jesus, receives sinners... And eats with them. Now, in that culture, tax collectors were really bad people. The bad people, the people with problems, the people with issues, the people with sin in their life, they were drawing near to Jesus. They were hanging out with Jesus. And the Bible here says the Pharisees. A Pharisee is a religious person that looked down upon others. He was a religious leader of the day. They were looking down upon Jesus because the Bible here says he received sinners. Very, very interesting word that Jesus uses there, to receive sinners. You know what that word means? 
In the original language, it means to gladly or joyfully welcome. Jesus gladly and joyfully welcomed sinners as his friends. So here's the good news this morning before we even start. If you've got problems, and I know I do, if you've got issues, if you've got baggage, if you've got sin, if you've got hang-ups, if you've got all these issues in your life, guess what? Jesus loves to receive you. He loves to hang out with you. He loves to welcome you. Now, he doesn't want you to stay where you are. He comes to transform you. But the good news is that Jesus was welcoming these sinners. And the religious people didn't like that. So this is why Jesus tells three stories. Three stories that are all wrapped up in one story. It's all about something being lost. The lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. So this is why Jesus tells these stories. And they all tie together. So let's pick up in verse 3. So he told them this parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost till he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulder, rejoicing. And when it comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I lost." Just so, I tell you, there's joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Same thing in both stories. Something's lost. There's a major search party to go find it. Once it's found, everybody celebrates. They have a party. And then Jesus makes a a statement about repentance. There's a lost sheep, a lost coin. Something was lost. It was found. There's a party And Jesus makes a statement about sinners repenting. Now, the story you're probably most familiar with is the parable of the prodigal son. But let me tell you, this is not the the parable of the prodigal son. It's the parable of the prodigal sons. There's two of them. Two sons. So let's read from verse 11 onward. In context of something being lost... Something being found, a party, and the statement about sinners repenting. Verse 11. He said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had, took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? 
I will arise and go to my father. I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came along, or he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. <coughs> Excuse me. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and, and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. And most of the time we think the story ends there. But it doesn't. Verse 25. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your, your brother's come and your father's killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look. These many years I've served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead, and as alive he was lost. And he was found. Now, there's a lot of things going on in this passage of Scripture, but let me distill it down into a statement. Let me distill it down into what I think this passage means. And, and here's, here's the bottom line. True freedom comes not in self-expression, being non-religious, or moral improvement, being religious. Freedom doesn't come in those two ways. Freedom comes by repenting and trusting in Jesus. In other words, what this parable shows us is the bondage, the guilt, the frustration, the futility of trying to live in both of those types of worlds. Whether you're trying to be moral, whether you're trying to be religious, or whether you're trying to be non-religious and just trying to express yourself, both of those bring bondage. Now, this is a story of two sons, and it starts with the younger son. And the younger son basically spits in his dad's face and does the worst thing you could do in that culture. The worst thing you could do in that culture to your father was to ask for the inheritance before your dad was dead. If you did that, it was basically saying to your dad, you're dead to me, I disrespect you, it's the worst thing you could do. And so basically the younger son spits in his father's face, says, listen, I want my inheritance, and, and surprisingly the father grants him the inheritance, and what does the son do? The son takes all that money, he goes off into a far country, and he begins living it up. He says, you know what, I don't have any care for, for any type of morality. I'm just going to express myself. I'm going to go visit prostitutes, I'm going to go party, I'm going to go have fun, I'm going to go live it up. He was being non-religious. He could care less about religion. He was wanting to express himself. I want to discover myself. I want to go off in a far country and be true to who I truly am. doesn't matter what the rules are. I just want pleasure in the here and now. So let's ask a question about the younger son. What does the younger son show us about the sin 
of self-expression by being non-religious. Okay, so the younger son represents this whole idea of living for, for yourself, living for self-discovery, self-expression. You're not religious. You're, you're, you're seeking pleasure. But what does this story about the younger son teach us? Well, it's interesting what the father says about the son. Look at verse 24, when the son comes back. Verse 24, For this my son was dead, he's alive again, he was lost, he's found. Now, the, the parable ends with that also in verse 32. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead, is alive, he's lost, and he's found. Two descriptions of the, of the brother, the younger son. First of all, it says he was dead. Now, here's what this teaches us about a relationship with Jesus that you need. The Bible says you are spiritually dead without Jesus. Ephesians 2, 1, you were dead in the trespasses and sins you used to once walk in. Every single person is born into this world spiritually dead, which means you're separated from God. It's part of your nature. It's part of, of who you are. It's why you sin. You sin because you are a sinner by nature, and you're spiritually separated from God. You're dead spiritually. You're not alive spiritually. You are spiritually dead. But not only that, notice what else the father says about the son. He says, my son was not only dead, he's alive. He's lost, and now he's found. So not only are you spiritually dead without Jesus, but the Bible says you are spiritually lost. Now, Christians use this terminology a lot. You're lost. And you may be thinking to yourself, now wait a minute. I'm not lost. I know exactly where I'm going. I drove here this morning. I got GPS. I know where I'm going. I've got my, 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 my life mapped out. I'm not lost. What do you mean I'm lost? I know where I'm going. Why, do, why does the Bible talk about the word lost? Very, very interesting word there for lost. In the story of the lost sheep, in the story of the lost coin, in the story of the lost son, the word lost is not, does not, it's not the way we use the word lost in our, our English language. When we use the word lost, like, okay, something's lost and we can't find it. The word lost there in the Bible is a Greek word that means to suffer punishment eternally in hell that's what it means to be lost so when when the bible talks about a person being lost that means that you didn't just lost your way spiritual spiritually and you, and you need to get back on the path what it means is because you're spiritually dead you are spiritually separated from god if you die in that state of being lost you will be forever separated from god for eternity Jesus says it this way in John 3, 17 through 19. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already, because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. This is the judgment. The lights come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Without Jesus, every single one of us is spiritually dead and spiritually lost. And in a sense, hopeless. Now I want you to see a picture of this in the sun. 
Think about this for a moment. At the end of verse 16, what's the, what's the, what's the state of the son at the end of verse 16? He's in the pig slop. He's lost all his friends. He's lost his dad. He's lost his money. He's lost his lovers. He's even lost the ability to even eat normal food. He's eating pig food. And he's sitting there in the muck and mire of that pigsty all alone. Penniless, friendless, fatherless, all alone. And that's a picture of what it means to be lost. Because if you die without Christ in your life, it's not just this temporary comfort, discomfort of not having the riches of the world, but it's, it's eternal separation from God. It's the ultimate in being hopeless. It's the ultimate in being alone. So there's a picture here of this young man who is spiritually lost and spiritually dead. And here's the point. Spiritual deadness and lostness lead you to seek pleasure in rebellion against God. Your heart longs to go rebel against God. So you're going to seek pleasure against God. So that's the story of the younger son. Reckless living. Living with prostitutes. Could care less about being moral. Could care less about being religious. I'm going to express myself. I'm going to find myself. I'm going to discover myself. I'm going to be true to myself. I'm going to find pleasure in the things of this world. I'm going to rebel against my dad. The non-religious person. And some of you may be thinking, well, that's really, really good because I, I know I'm not. I'm definitely not that son. I don't cheat on my taxes. I've not been an axe murderer at least the past couple years. I'm pretty good. I haven't killed anybody lately. haven't cheated on my spouse. I don't visit prostitutes. I don't do all those crazy, reckless things that people do. I'm a moral, upright citizen. God, apple pie, country. Um, I, I'm, I'm patriotic. I, I go to church. I, I do the best I can. I, there, there's no way this story's about me. Thank the Lord I'm not the younger son. This is a story of two sons. Before you start saying, thank you, Lord, I'm not the younger son, there's an older son. So let's ask a question. What does the older brother show us about the sin of moral improvement by being religious? Remember, there's two ways to live. Self-expression, non-religious, live for yourself. That sin is very easy to pinpoint, especially among church people. That's why Christianity is so confusing. We can point our finger at those people. Yeah, those people that do those wicked things out there, they're really, really bad. But here's the problem. If you try to be religious or you try to be moral or you try to earn brownie points with God by your behavior, sometimes we don't see that as a sin. It's a little bit hard to detect. And that's where we sometimes get tripped up because we don't see morality and trying to earn God's favor through being religious as just as sinful as living a non-religious life. Now, what does the younger brother say when his dad comes home and, and the son comes home and they throw a party? Remember, something's lost, something's found. There's a party thrown. How does the younger son act? Well, look at verses 29 and 30. He basically gets in his dad's face and chews him out. Look at verses 29 and 30. He was angry. And refused to go in. And so he didn't want to go into the party. He's, he's up there. He's stewing. He's mad. He's throwing, he's throwing a hissy fit. I don't want to go in. His dad comes out like, what's, what's the problem, son? 
And then he lays into his dad. Look, these many years I've served you. I've never disobeyed you. I've never gone and lived with prostitutes. I've been a good son. Here's my resume, dad. And never once have you given me what I deserve. Father, you're obligated to bless me because of how good I am. Be very careful when you ask God to bless you because of how good you are. Or you put your resume up before God. You see, he's acting out of self-interest, self-preservation. He's saying, look, Dad, look how moral I've been. Look how good I've been. Look, I've kept my nose clean, so you're obligated to bless me. So the moral person says, because I've been a good person, because I obey the Ten Commandments, because I try really, really hard, God, you are obligated to bless me. God, you're obligated to, to work with me. And hopefully at the end of my life, I will go to heaven because after all, all these years, I've done the right thing. I haven't done all those wicked things that other people do with prostitutes. I've kept my nose clean, so therefore, God, you owe me. But let me just give you a little bit of information here. That son was just as spiritually dead and spiritually lost as the other son without Jesus. Spiritual death and spiritual lostness will lead you to rebel against God and seeking pleasure, but it will also do this. Spiritual deadness and lostness will lead you to be religious and trying to earn favor with God. Listen to what the Bible says about that. Isaiah 64, 6. We've all become like one who's unclean, and all of our righteous deeds, our good deeds, are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Here's the truth of this passage of Scripture. Whether you're trying to be a very moral person and earn God's acceptance by being religious, or whether you're a non-religious person and you could care less about God, you're just trying to live for yourself, both of those are sins. And the Bible says this in Romans 3, 10 through 12. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Everybody's a sinner. And here's the problem. Everybody's a sinner. And here's the payout at the end of your life. At the end of your life, if you want to live for yourself, regardless of whether being religious or non-religious, there's a payout. There's a payment coming at the end of your life. You're probably familiar with this passage of Scripture. Romans chapter 6. Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So you've got the religious way to live by moral improvement. You've got the non-religious way to live by just seeking pleasure. Both of those are sins and will lead you to be separated from Christ. So what's the third way? What's the right way? What's the Jesus way? Well, here's the answer. You can be rescued from sin through repentance and faith in Christ. Now, let's talk a little bit about repentance. Because look at verse 7. There is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. A sinner who repents. Okay? At the end of verse 10, just so I tell you, there's joy before the angels over one sinner who repents. This whole story is about something lost, something found, a celebration. Okay, but there's something that happens in between something lost, something being found. Something's lost, something's found, 
a sinner repents, and there's a celebration. Now, you, you may say, well, where's repentance in this passage of Scripture? Repentance means to change your mind, or God changes your mind, about who you are and about who he is. And when you come to the conclusion that you're a sinner and you're separated from God and you have that change of mind, it leads into your heart to where your heart and mind, because God has so convicted you, you turn from that sin and you follow Christ. Repentance means to do a 180 degree turn. You turn from the life of sin, whether that's being religious or whether that's being non-religious, you turn from that, and as you turn from that, you turn toward faith in Christ. You see Christ as better than the life that you're living. Look at verse 17. I don't know what your translations say. Mine says, when he came to himself. Maybe your translation says when he came to his senses. That's repentance. He is sitting there in the pigsty. He comes to himself. He comes to his senses. And what does he say? Man, I'm, I'm destitute. I, I, I'm destitute. I'm lost. I'm, I'm going to perish here. Notice that he goes up and goes back to his father. I, I, will, I will rise and go to my father. Now, when he says there in verse 17... But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? The word perish is the same word for lost that's used in the rest of the parable. It's basically saying, I'm lost here. I perish here. I'm under, I'm under the curse of sin here. If I stay like this, I'm going to die and spend eternity separated from God. So he comes to his senses and says, listen, I'm in a desperate situation. I know that if I stay where I'm at, I will perish. I am lost. I'm spiritually dead. I need to get up and leave and go back to my father. And I'm going to confess my sin. Notice in 18, he confesses his sin. I will arise and go to my father. I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. He says to himself, listen, it's better to at least be hired out as a slave than to live here. So I'm going to go back. I'm going to own up to my sin. I'm going to confess my sin. I'm going to confront my sin. And I'm going to get up and I'm going to go home. <clears throat> That's repentance. And notice he doesn't come home with two women on his arm. Walking into his dad's. Hey, Dad, bring me back. He comes back broken. He comes back contrite. He comes back because he realizes, I am hopeless, I am helpless, and I'm hell-bound without Jesus. So I'm going to repent. I'm going to come face-to-face with my condition, and I'm going to change my mind about who I am, about who God is. God's worked in his heart, convicted him to come back. You see, repentance comes when you realize what sin is. Whether it's the sin of being moral, being religious, trying to earn God's favor, or whether it's the sin of being non-religious or trying to express yourself. Both are sins which need to be repented from. Acts 3, 19-20, Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. Turn back, repent. Times of refreshing are going to come. When you repent, you will receive forgiveness. You, you will have your sins blotted out. Isaiah 55, 6-7, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon his name while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way. 
and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. I love this passage of Scripture because it says when you repent, God will abundantly pardon. He will abundantly pardon you. Now, the young man makes the decision to repent. I'm going to repent and go back home. It's risky, right? Because what could have happened to him? Technically, in that culture, his dad could have killed him. But notice what happens in verse 20. What does the father do? Look at verse 20. He arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. He runs to his son. He kisses his son. He embraces his son. He throws a party for his son. Now notice what the dad does not do. The dad doesn't disown his son. The dad doesn't condemn the son. The dad doesn't lecture the son. The dad doesn't send the son to the servants' quarters. The the dad doesn't have his son beaten. He responds with compassion. That word compassion there in the original language, when it said the father felt compassion, it's a deeply felt, almost like the whole idea that your your guts are spilling out with so much love. Now, obviously, this is a parable. Who's the father? Well, it's God the father. If you're here this morning and you repent, you turn and you trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, you find a father who loves you and surrounds you and cares for you, and welcomes you, and abundantly forgives you. Now remember, Jesus is telling three stories here. It's interesting when you study these three parables together. In the parable of the lost sheep, what happens? A sheep's lost, and they send a rescue party to go out and find the sheep. Like there's this fever, so we got to find the sheep. Okay, lost coin. What happens in the lost coin? She, she, she lights up the area, and there, there's this diligent search for the coin to see if they can find it. So something's lost, and there's a diligent search. What's missing in the third parable? Does anybody go out and search for the son? No. Here's what the older son should have said. The older son should have said, Father, my little brother's been a knucklehead. He's a royal pain. He's been a grade-A jerk. But you know what? I will go at my expense, and I'm going to go find him. And when I find him, I'm going to bring him back, and I will pay everything that he squandered, and we're going to restore him to the family because he's one of us. That's what the older brother should have done. He should have gone and searched for his son and brought him back, or his brother and brought him back. Do we see anything like that in the older brother? No, as a matter of fact, he hates the fact that his dad treated him that way. So here's the point. You and I need an older brother who will go to great lengths to search for us, seek us, pay our debt, and bring us back into the father's family. And who's the greatest older brother you can ever have? His name's Jesus. Jesus Christ is the true older brother in this story. Who's telling the story? Jesus. Now, we've got to ask ourselves a question. If it is true that if you're lost 
and you repent and you come back to Jesus and the Father receives you and there's a party thrown in heaven, how is all of this possible? Can God just simply forgive? Let bygones be bygones? You just say you're sorry and so, no, what has to happen? Jesus has to die for our sins and rise again for us in order for any of this to happen. Think about Luke 19.10. For the Son of Man, that's Jesus, came to seek and save that what was lost. Jesus went on a rescue mission. Jesus came to seek us. Jesus left the glories of heaven to come find us. He's the one that went on the search party to try to find us who were lost. And not only did he seek us, but he saved us. How did he save us? He saved us by dying on the cross in our place. He went to great expense to make sure that we would be saved out of that sin and brought back into the Father's family. And not only did he just die for our sins, but he rose again on the third day. That's why we celebrate Easter. That's why we celebrate the resurrection. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, 3-7. He says, For I delivered as of you, as of first importance, what I also received. The Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Over 500 people Jesus appeared to. The resurrection is a bona fide historical reality. It literally happened. Jesus literally, physically rose from the dead with over 500 eyewitnesses. That's what sets Christianity apart from any other world religion. The resurrection, the empty tomb. You can go to the city of Medina today in Saudi Arabia, and you can see the mosque where Muhammad is buried. He died and never rose again. Siddhartha Gautama was the founder of Buddhism. He was died and, and he was cremated and his relics are in temples all throughout the Far East. He died and never rose again. Confucius, the Chinese philosopher, he was buried in his hometown and people go to his tomb today. You see, here's the thing. Christianity is the only world religion. And it's not really a world religion. Christianity is the only truth where not only did Jesus come as God from heaven and die, but rose again, and he is alive today. 1 Corinthians 15, 13-14 says this, If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. Think about that. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, our faith is stupid. There's no reason we should be here. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, go home. There's no reason for us to be here. That's what Paul's saying. There's no point to Christianity. Our faith is meaningless if there's not an empty tomb, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. And not only that, he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. You've got a useless faith and you're still in your sins. You're still in your sins. Think about what was said of the younger brother. He was dead, but now he's alive. He was lost, and now he's found. Without the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, we would all be lost, and we would all be dead. But praise be to Jesus, because he rose from the dead, we can be alive, and we can be found, we can be saved. 
Now, remember how this parable was set up in verses 1 and 2? Why, why did Jesus tell these stories in the first place? Sometimes you can lose a forest for the trees. Something's lost, something's found, somebody repents, there's a party. Lost sheep, lost coin, lost son. How did Jesus start it out? Verse 2, the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. This man receives sinners and eats with them. This man draws near to sinners. You see, here's the beauty and power of Easter. If you're a sinner here this morning, and you draw near to Jesus, and you repent of your sins, and you trust in Jesus, God loves to throw a party for you. Heaven rejoices when sinners repent. Jesus loves to welcome sinners into his family. But see, you've got to acknowledge something. You've got to acknowledge where you are this morning. You've got to ask yourself, now wait a minute. Am I really, really trying to be religious and earn points with God by trying to be a good person? I've got to confess that as a sin. I've got to turn from that, and I've got to trust in Jesus Christ alone. Maybe some of you are here today, and you're like, you know what? I came into this place because it's kind of the thing to do on Easter, but I could really care less about being religious. I want to express myself. I want to live for myself. I want to live for maximum pleasure. I don't really care that much about being religious. You need to repent from that. Both of those are sins from which you need to repent. There's a third way, the gospel way, the way of repenting, turning, trusting in Jesus because he died on the cross and he rose again. And here's the promise. I guarantee you this. If you repent and turn to Jesus today, he stands ready, willing, and able to save anybody here today who will come to him in repentance and faith. There is nobody beyond the reach of King Jesus to reach down and save you. So what better day than on Easter 2018 than to either be like the sun and say, what am I doing here? i got to get up and go home. Or maybe you're like the older brother and say, you know what, I've got so much anger and religion in my heart, it's puffed me up with pride. Every single one of us needs to be leveled this morning in humility to see that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords, and we trust in him because he rose from the dead. Will you today repent and believe in Jesus Christ alone? Let me ask you to bow your heads. If you're here this morning and you're under deep conviction and what has been said makes sense and it's resonating in your heart, and you know that that's not coming from you, but it's coming from God. Would I encourage you to, in the quietness of this moment, cry out to Jesus and ask him to save you? Cry out to Jesus and ask him to forgive you? Would you turn from that sin and turn to faith in Christ? Just spend a few moments in silent time before the Lord asking him to search your heart, deeply in your heart, so that you can be exposed and confess to him. 
your need for him as Savior and Lord. Would you spend a few moments in prayer welcoming joyfully any sinner that would repent? That, Father, you're not a stern God when sinners repent, but you're a, a God with arms open wide. But, Lord, we need to see our need. We need to confess that. We need to turn and trust in Jesus. And when we do, we find arms wide open. We find a loving, forgiving Savior. We find God ready, willing, and able to accept us based upon the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. So, Lord, my prayer this morning is that if there's anybody here that has never, ever once in their life turned from that sin and placed their faith in Jesus Christ alone, that today would be the day that they would do that. Today would be their day of salvation. Lord, thank you for the empty tomb. Thank you for being our risen Savior. We want this entire day to be a celebration of our faith, that, Lord, we don't have a futile faith. We don't have an empty faith. We have a living faith because we have a living Savior. And we're no longer in our sins because the tomb is empty. We're freed from our sins. So, Lord, would thank you for freeing us from the bondage of either being religious or non-religious, of being moral or trying to express ourselves. Lord, both of those are dead-end streets that only lead us to perish. Will we find the third way this morning by repenting and believing in Jesus Christ alone? It's in your name that we pray these things, Lord. Amen.